Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. This is episode three. I am Dr. Levi Sowers, and with me is Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Well, Brandon, today we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Randy Carden. He's a professor of neuro-ophthalmology at the University of Iowa and director of the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Loss. And before we really get started with his interview, we want to do uh, a brief introduction into what research is at the VA. Today we're going to be talking about the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss, uh, of which Dr. Carden is part of, uh, and Brandon and I are also part of. Uh, the center is one of 14 centers nationwide. They're funded by Rehabilitation, Research, and Development. Research, Rehabilitation, and Development is one of four branches of research at the VA under the Office of Research and Development. Research and Development had a $733 million budget in fiscal year of 2018. Yeah, and, and that's a, it seems like a lot of money, which it is, but uh, it's really important because research at the VA is one of three key pillars uh, alongside clinical care, education, and training for veterans. And throughout its 90-year history, VA research has produced many firsts. They can lay claim to the first liver transplant, artificial kidney, nicotine patches for uh, to help people quit smoking, implantable pacemakers, uh, some of the first there, and then clinical trials to show that drugs like aspirin can prevent heart attack. Uh, his uh, research from the VA has resulted in three Nobel Prizes. Uh, it is a leader in prosthetics, polytrauma care, uh, and, and TBI as well as many others. If we specifically hone in on, on our center now, the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss, we focus on a multitude of visual disorders that affect veterans, uh, the veteran population. Uh, the center is renewed every five years and its focus is to uh, rehabilitate veterans with visual problems and this ranges from glaucoma research to light sensitivity after traumatic brain injury as well as migraine. And. Uh, you know the the center is the center itself is a five hundred thousand dollar a year entity. Uh, it's funded for five years, and we just got renewed a couple years ago. And this is actually how the the uh, podcast that Brandon and I are doing right now got started. Uh, we needed to improve our outreach to veterans, and we figured that we could uh, talk to them directly and hear from veterans uh, to get this to get this podcast going. And so today, um, like we said, we have Dr. Carden, and we're about to get started with his interview. Welcome back to the Vets First Podcast. Today we have uh, Randy Carden, who is a professor of neuro-ophthalmology at the University of Iowa, and he's the director of the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss here at the VA, uh, which is a center for research here. And so he lives in Iowa City. Uh, joining us as well is Brandon. Hello. Uh, and as always, I'm here as well. And so, Randy, welcome and thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. A little bit about Randy. He uh, hired me at the Visual Center about four years ago, and he has been very supportive of this podcast and what we're doing with it uh, in terms of getting it up and running and providing resources for it. So once again, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. First and foremost, you are very experienced in the field of neuro-ophthalmology. Can you tell us a little bit about what is neuro-ophthalmology? That's a good question. <laughs> Neuro-ophthalmology is a very subspecialized part of eye care and ophthalmology, and it deals with difficult problems that the cause is not known, why someone's having a vision problem. It can be unknown cause of vision loss. It can be very unusual, funny visual symptoms, 
or it can be things like double vision or uh, eyelids that don't blink correctly or pupils that are unequal. So it encompasses a fair amount of ophthalmology that's often connected to problems in the brain. It may not be just caused by the eye or other problems in the rest of the body that show up in the eye exam. And these are problems that usually are not that obvious when the regular eye doctor examines a person. So it's usually we're the last stop for referral of unusual problems that are not obvious, not only to diagnose, but to help with treatment. So it's a lot of detective work. Would you say that you sort of overlap with neurology at all? There's some overlap. As a matter of fact, some neuro-ophthalmologists are trained as neurologists and then do a special fellowship training period in neuro-ophthalmology. And the other half are trained as ophthalmologists and then do a special fellowship training period in neuro-ophthalmology. So it's one of the few subspecialties in medicine where half the people are trained in neurology and half in ophthalmology but they all are focused on similar problems that have to be evaluated by someone who have special expertise in this area. These are problems that the regular neurologists or regular ophthalmologists don't see enough of to really understand completely in many cases. Hmm. So are you, so are you typically then like, are you diagnosing like rarer conditions in people? It could be rare conditions or it could be common conditions that didn't present in a common way. So it could be anything from a problem in the brain. It may have been a stroke that a person has and has unusual hallucinations or funny symptoms. It could be a tumor that's not diagnosed that's affecting the visual system. It could be migraine that are causing funny, unusual visual symptoms. Or it can be a problem in the eye that maybe is as simple as a dry eye even that's causing doubling of vision hmm. and the eye doctor didn't realize it was a simple common problem like that, but it's presenting in an unusual way. And I would say most of the time the problem is that the first line eye doctor just didn't have enough time to spend with the patient to fully understand by talking to them what the problem is. So this is a, a common scenario, not only in the VA system, but in regular non-VA practices is that with how busy the clinics are and the limited amount of time that a doctor has to spend with the patient, they don't get a chance to delve into the problem and listen carefully to what the patient has to say or have time to ask all the questions to really elucidate what's the problem, what's the characteristics of the problem, in order to really understand how to focus the exam and what to do next. So the VA with vets, uh, what's the most common eye problem that you tend to see coming into the clinic? In the VAI clinic, the most common problem is really cataracts. Mm. It's still the most common problem. Is that is that the same for the general population? Yes, yes. Huh. Okay. And similar for other retinal problems like macular degeneration can present in unusual ways, not just blurring or decrease in vision. Or diabetes affecting the eye in different ways, not only the retina, but the alignment of the eyes. 
uh, or glaucoma, which can take away parts of a person's vision in their field of vision that might be either not even symptomatic or may present in ways that's not obvious. Interesting. So if I were a patient coming into the, the VA clinic and I go see my regular eye doctor, I have some weird visual symptom and the doctor can't necessarily diagnose what I'm, what I have, then I would go see someone like you. Is that correct? Yes. That Usually the eye doctor or the neurologist would refer to a neuro-ophthalmologist okay. because the patient obviously doesn't know what a neuro-ophthalmologist yeah. is most of the time or where to go. So we depend on the referral from the optometrist or ophthalmologist and neurologist, internal medicine specialist, family care doctor, they usually know what a neuro-ophthalmologist does and how much time we spend with a patient. So I might spend over an hour with a patient just talking to them and examining them, whereas a regular neurologist or eye doctor may only have five to 10 minutes to do that. Yeah. And so I don't see as many patients in a day because they're not run-of-the-mill problems that can just be diagnosed immediately. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a fair amount of experience and delving into the problem to get to the root of it. So neuro-ophthalmology being pretty refined, how did you get drawn to neuro-ophthalmology versus other areas uh, in terms of medical care? That's a good question. Well, first, when I was going through medical school, I was trying to find out what area would be the best suited for the way my mind thinks and what I like to do in practice. And so first thing, I just eliminated the things that didn't seem to work right. So it's kind of like pruning a tree. Mm. And then I was getting a little worried because I liked all areas, but I couldn't see myself doing it every day. So when I was a last year medical student, there weren't too many branches left on the tree. And ophthalmology <laughs> was one of the last ones. And we didn't have a lot of exposure to ophthalmology as medical students. So I started going to grand rounds in the eye department here at the university. Because every morning we have a grand rounds where interesting cases are discussed. And when I saw really what it was all about, I really thought this was great. Because you can see things in the eye that tell you what's going on in the rest of the body or the brain. You can test the eye in ways that's not accessible to other organs. You can see things in the eye that you can't see in other organs. And so it kind of was love at first sight when I finally saw what was going on and what you could do. Yeah. And so then I decided, well, ophthalmology is for me. Um, let's go back even further. Uh, where'd you grow up at? Where are you from? Actually, I'm very homegrown. I grew up in <laughs> Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, Des Moines. Nice. Okay. And I am uh, grew up in a middle-class family. So were you, were you Des Moines proper or were you near Des Moines? No, I grew up in Des Moines proper. <laughs> okay. And uh, neither of my parents uh, went past high school. And my dad uh, was a partner with his uncle for an auto parts store. And I worked there every summer, which taught me that I didn't want to do auto parts the rest of my life. Sure. Mm -hmm. I certainly picked up a lot of colorful language there. <laughs> but uh, it kind of motivated me to know I wanted to pursue. My parents always told me to pursue what you wanted to do and mm -hmm. enjoyed and not what I thought they would want me to do. So uh, I you know, grew up in Des Moines, went to high school, applied to a lot of different colleges and got in in different places, but I, in the end, decided, why don't I just go to the University of Iowa? It was a big school, 
I knew I could find areas that I liked to study there. It was easy on the pocketbook and I got a full scholarship at that time. So I thought that was just an oh, ideal wow. yeah. place to come. And which uh, high school did you go to in Des Moines? I went to Des Moines Roosevelt. Okay. I don't know where Roosevelt's at. And, uh, and so actually I came here to the university of Iowa as a freshman in 1972, a long time ago. I bet your tuition was cheaper back then. <laughs> You won't believe it, but the year's tuition was like $600 a oh year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I could, uh, on the scholarship and work my way through part of the college, I did yard work and lawn work for one of the apartment buildings to make sure that I didn't you know, have any debt. So did you come to Iowa with the intention of going to medical school? No, I didn't know for sure. I like science and uh, I started pre-med and I had very good mentors in biology who, you know, motivated me and took an interest in me that helped me, you know, encouraged me to go in that direction. And, uh, and then I just knew that medical school would take advantage of science but could help people at the same time and I did research as an undergraduate and I was encouraged to do that so I finished undergraduate in three years because I went to summer school each summer and I was encouraged to do a combined MD-PhD program and back then 1975 it was the first class of MD-PhD program that the university sponsored. Yeah, I was going to say, this this program's not super old, so... Yeah. yeah. So I was one of the guinea pigs in that program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, a life insurance company, the Prudential, also sponsored a scholarship program for MD-PhDs because they wanted research to prolong life, which would help their business. And so I won a full-ride scholarship with a research proposal that was sponsored by... The Prudential Life Insurance Company at that time. Nice. So I didn't have any debt when I finished the combined program, which took seven years. So that combined medical school and a PhD thesis project. And you did your residency here too? Yes, I went away awesome. for one year yeah. to a, a big clinic in La Crosse, Wisconsin to do a year of internal medicine and then came back here to do a residency in ophthalmology. You're like me. I've been in Iowa my whole career. <laughs> well, it's a good atmosphere it of is. collaboration and value system. And I think people's egos are at a low level. They kind of like to do things for the right reasons. And so I always found that a hospitable environment to grow in. How did you first get involved with the VA and research in the VA? So uh, after I finished my ophthalmology residency, first of all, during medical school, I also did treatment of veterans during medical school rotations mm -hmm. of internal and medicine. And that's a, that's, a, that's a, a collaboration between the university and the VA, yes. is that correct? Because back in the 1950s, the government built veterans hospitals in close proximity to university hospitals oh, wow. because they wanted the doctors to be shared by both so they get high quality care for veterans mm -hmm. and also medical students trained at both places. So I really enjoyed working with veterans back then. That was even when we still had World War One veterans too. Oh, oh man, too. that's wild. Yeah. And I really enjoyed taking care of veterans as a medical student. And then after I finished my, and, and during ophthalmology residency, we also took care of veterans in 
and participated in surgery and eye care. So I had more exposure, which I enjoyed. And then uh, doing a two-year fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology. After that, I was lucky enough to be offered a faculty position to start here in 1989. And at that time, I wanted to combine research with clinical work. And the VA and the NIH had a career development program where you apply for a, with a good idea for what you want to do research and you compete. And if you get funded, then they pay for your salary so that you have enough time to not only do clinical work, but to do research. And I applied to both NIH and the Career Development Award. And first time in, the VA funded my research. The NIH liked it and wanted me to reapply. Mm -hmm. But since the VA was right up front, was willing to fund me, I took advantage of that. And I was actually funded and renewed as a career development award back then for a whole nine years. Whoa, you could renew as a career development award? Back then you could. Wow, yes. that's really cool. And so, you know, almost all my salary was paid for. So yeah. I could do as little or as most as more clinical work as I wanted. And since a lot of my research involved clinical work, the two really went hand in hand. So I could do both and one fed on the other. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got started as a VA investigator. And, that's cool. And it was really, you know, a great opportunity for me. You know, it's interesting. Randy has this eternal optimism about research, and I hope to maintain that throughout my career. But what do you focus on in your research? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And why it's important to veterans? And So uh, in the beginning, I focused on natural reflexes of the eye. In other words, if you shine a light in the eye, the pupil gets smaller. And that's part of a nerve reflex that you don't have voluntary control over. And the advantage of it is that if something's going wrong in the retina or optic nerve or connections of the eye to the brain, the pupil response to light will be less than normal. So you can use the pupil's movement to light as an objective reflex to say whether someone's having a problem in the eye and following its treatment. So I was under the mentorship of a famous professor, Dr. Stanley Thompson here, who is well known for diagnosing pupil problems or using the pupil to diagnose eye problems. And so I used new technology at the time with recording the pupils with infrared cameras and devising ways of analyzing the video with new computer boards oh, to actually, this was 1989, oh, wow. 87, 88, 89, during my fellowship and during my, my first years. Is. So does the pupil change in response to neurological conditions too? So if I have um, a tumor, will that change my pupillary response? Yes, well, especially if the tumor is impeding the transmission of the light signal from the eye to the brain, then you'll see it because the pupil reaction will be less. But besides things that, that influence the visual pathways, other things are reflected in the pupil too. For example, if a person has damage to the nerves that go out to the eye to make the pupil contract from aneurysms or from other tumors not affecting the actual visual pathway, but the actual pathways that go 
out to the eye to make the pupil contract, that will cause unequal pupil response between the two eyes. Because when you shine a light in the eye, the way the system's wired up is both pupils react at the same time with the same amount of, of contraction. Mm -hmm. But if something affects the outflow pathway back to the eye, it could be unequal. And that can be the first sign of a serious life-threatening damage too. Interesting. Now, in addition to that, if you get real tired or fatigued, your pupils get small. And so you can monitor other conditions, neurologic conditions, that may cause the pupils to get real small or real large that are independent of the visual system. So it's also useful even for testing how well you're performing with your thinking or cognitive function. The pupil responds when you're engaged in an activity that makes them dilate. And if you're giving up on an activity or not interested, the pupils often get small. So uh, that's how I started out. But yeah. then I also uh, became interested in ways of imaging the back of the eye with new technology as it became available in the last 15 years that images the layers of the back of the eye and the retina, um, which can tell you if nerves are being permanently lost because these layers become thinner. It's kind of like a sandwich. If you start losing the meat in the sandwich, the, that layer becomes thinner. And that's called optical coherence tomography or OCT. And that's a way of non-invasively imaging the eye. So that's a way now of non-invasively measuring the structure of the eye. So a person's response to visual um, testing is very important. But sometimes those responses are clouded by their fears and anxiety and and they don't respond uh, accurately, not because they're trying to not respond accurately, but sometimes your responses are influenced by how anxious you are. And so if we can develop reflex responses or structural responses that are objective, we can then supplement a person's responses to what letters they see on the eye chart, for example, mm -hmm. and know, you know also what's there or not there or what's being affected by these objective reflexes. So it's a way of supplementing the person's subjective responses to different visual tests to help them know or help the doctors know if something serious is going on in the eye. That's really interesting. Um, do you have any other questions on this topic? I was going to say it's pretty nice when going to the doctor if you're feeling anxious having this uh, additional test to kind of circumvent the anxiety while being in there. Yeah, and I think patients are relieved because then they know it's they didn't do something wrong mm -hmm. or oh, absolutely. their responses were inaccurate. I'm worried the doctor so really, find so, so part of your research, um, there's, there's two things I, I kind of want to talk about here is that one, since I've joined your group, at the, at the VA and, and been working with you guys now for four years. It's been interesting to see the eye as sort of a window into the brain, mm -hmm. and you're very adamant about um, making that statement. Um, that's pretty cool. Can you just talk about that for a second? Yes. Uh, so also besides the pupil movements and the structure of the eye, the eyelids, of course, move in response to different things in your blinking rate and we can monitor that. And also the eye movements, how the eyes are tracking objects, if they're tracking them the same way, if they're misaligned, that's another sign of, of disorders in the brain. But I think another aspect 
that you're hitting on, which is very important, is other neurologic problems like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or multiple sclerosis, those also show up in the eye. And so the eye is becoming very important as a way not just to help doctors diagnose these, but monitoring new treatments. Because if you can save nerves or function in the eye that's reflected in the eye from these neurologic conditions, it is a window onto monitoring new treatments. So not that some of these disorders blind a person, but if they show up in the eye and the reflexes and the structure of the eye that we can detect in a very precise way that we can't detect with neuroimaging like brain scans that mm -hmm. don't have the precision that the eye scans have, then we're way ahead of the game because if we can detect them earlier before functional consequences occur, then we can intervene with new treatments and monitor it using these reflexes. It might provide an earlier window into treatment, right? Yes. That we don't currently have, which mm -hmm. could be very powerful, I think. That's, that's and it's the neat. same thing with migraine is that we found that some of the features of the face in response to light are very exaggerated. You know, people are slight sensitive and they squint in, and it's totally involuntary. Mm -hmm. And we can actually pick up those features and we're hoping to see if we can use those features not only to diagnose migraine, even when a person's not having a headache, but also can we use it to diagnose and monitor how effective the treatment is for that person, like a personalized medicine response. Yeah, and something else that I think is really interesting is being able to how easily it would be to track this over time with like a smartphone that could do it or something, right? You could yes. just look at the camera of your smartphone and have a patient's readout for, you know, every day of a year or something. That's exactly right. And not only that, but these same reflexes occur in different species, not just humans. Yeah. So investigators that are trying to model these in animals to try out new treatments before they know if they're effective or safe in humans, we can use the same parallel reflexes and structural studies in animal models of disorders that are directly translatable to using the same things in humans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important that the VA does research in your opinion? Yes, two reasons. First of all, there are certain problems that there are certain problems that are more prevalent or more common in veterans that we want to focus on besides the problems that are also present in the general population. For example, traumatic brain injury. Well, traumatic brain injury obviously occurs in the general population after a motor vehicle accident with a concussion or sports injury. But of course, military that have served are exposed to concussions and blast injuries. And so they have a higher incidence of the type of problems than the general population. And we wanna make sure that we address these in veterans because we want to not only diagnose it, but try to find better treatments that not only will benefit veterans, but also the general population too. The other aspect of you know, veteran research is that we want to connect with veterans as a give back 
to their service to the country. I mean, they've put their lives in jeopardy and have served the country in different ways. Yeah, I think we have a moral obligation to, to serve the veterans in a way, right? Yes. That's how I look at it. And we want to provide the very best medical care. And another problem that the VA faces is access. I mean, veterans sometimes find it difficult to gain access to the medical system in a timely fashion. And so we're also devising ways of being able to screen larger populations of patients with some of these objective tests Mm -hmm. so that we can find veterans who are having a problem maybe at outlying facilities to know who should be prioritized to see right away who are having a problem. We have to find ways of looking at larger populations to funnel them into the right doctors sooner. Yeah. Same thing in the general population. It's not easy to get access to a doctor. And the doctors would like to see the patients who are having the more difficult problems right away too. Mm-hmm. It's not just the patients want to see the doctors. The doctors would like to prioritize and take care of the patients that are in the most need first. So we're trying to develop methods of screening patients, not only in outpatient clinics, but even at home with some of these devices that yeah. could be done on a smartphone or a tablet that a veteran could test themselves, You know, maybe take some responsibility and get the results right away so that they know whether they're having a problem that needs care right away. And some visual symptoms aren't that dangerous or need to be seen right away, but some are. Yeah, absolutely. And if we had a way of detecting that, that would be fantastic for veterans and for VA doctors too. So Dr. Carden, uh, the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss here at the VA, is that unique to Iowa City? Is that present in other cities as well, other VAs? How did the center come about? So the, this, the VA Office of Research and Development, they have made it a priority to develop centers across the United States that will focus on very important VA healthcare problems to group together experts in the field of that area to do research that will directly impact veterans' lives. And there are three main research branches of the VA, and one of them is called Rehabilitation Research and Development, or RR&D. And the main branch of research for the VA for RR&D is to translate the research that's done in the VA to impact in a positive way veterans' lives and improve their function in everyday life. And so they competitively have uh, grant applications to form a center to group a number of experts in the field that are in that location to propose relevant research that's groundbreaking that will translate to improving veterans' lives. And they have funded 14 such centers Mm. in the United States. And two or three kind of what are called REAPs, which are research enhancement awards that are kind of smaller centers. And so these 14 centers are in different areas of medical research. There may be one for spinal cord injury. There may be one for 
uh, musculoskeletal problems. There may be one for neurologic problems. In our center was competitive for studying vision problems in veterans and also neurologic problems that are affecting vision. And you have to have a number of investigators at the VA that are already funded in this area to even apply for this center. And so you propose a five-year plan to start out with uh, that brings together different experts to focus on some major healthcare problem in veterans that you have expert knowledge in. And if you're lucky enough to be funded, which we were lucky enough 10 years ago to be funded, the VA uh, provides $4.5 million over five years, that's $900,000 a year, to create opportunities for research to get more funding from the National Institute of Health, from the Department of Defense, from other VA grants, and from private foundations to really accelerate the research and bring in more funds to uh, leverage that core funding of $900,000 a year to create more research and more opportunity. And they want to see a center be successful to the tune of at least a five to one ratio. So every dollar that they give the center in core funding, they want you to leverage that into at least $5 of other funding to really grow this area of research. So with the with these centers, if a vet is interested in participating in research or reaching out, how big of a hurdle is that? Because knowing research being conducted at the VA might be news to some vets. Um, how, how can one get uh, in contact to participate in research? That's a centers? very good question. Because a lot of veterans aren't aware of what research is going on. And what I found over the years, veterans are some of the finest people to step up and volunteer for studies. I mean, they're, it's, it's legendary almost. And that's what makes one of the reasons for doing research in the VA so uh, important and so satisfying is that veterans are really very willing to participate in research. But every major VA that have these researchers that are getting grants has a research office at the mm -hmm. local VA. And there are easy ways of getting in contact with that VA office. Most VA centers have their own website. And on that website is a link to the research office. But another mechanism is through these podcasts. We want to make veterans aware of this is going on. And our own center has a website too. And not only that, we're trying to develop applications on a smartphone that maybe a veteran could use to test their own vision, but also are informative about different disorders that may affect their vision, but also has links to our center so they can see <coughs> what different projects are going on. We also have researchers that are trying to connect with veterans to go to monthly uh, telephone conferences that are held through the local VA and to make them more aware and connect with veterans. So we're looking for opportunities to connect mm -hmm. both directions. 
not only for us to tell the veterans what's going on, but for veterans often have questions about their own disorder or family members' disorders, and they want to know what's going on, what's being done to solve these problems. Yeah, that's one thing that's really struck me since we started this podcast is how much not only is it about the veteran, but it's also about their caretakers and their family. So we serve the veteran, but we also serve their their family as well. Just a very good and, point. Uh, you know, that's... You just brought that up, and it's it's something that I think we should definitely keep in mind as we when we do research. Mm-hmm. And it's something that was really brought out when we went to Pittsburgh a few weeks ago at the Hurl, the center uh, in Pittsburgh, was how much they actually study the caretakers for veterans who have um, um, issues with mobility. And the more that we meet in person with veterans, then the researcher becomes more aware of what are the questions that they have and how they would like to become involved and what's the best mechanism? Not everybody has a smartphone. Yeah. And what are ways that we can better connect with veterans? When I talk to veterans, you know, not as a patient, but just talking to them, the common story that I often hear is that we don't feel like we're being listened to enough. And maybe it's because our healthcare system right now is trying to see so many patients that there's not enough time to listen as much as we'd like. But we have to find better ways, we have to find better ways of listening to the veterans so that they also feel like that somebody is listening to them and that they're translating their issues and their questions into solutions and better communication. Very, very important. Well, Randy, uh, to finish on a fun note, what's a fact about you that isn't science or uh, doctor related or research related? Uh, I love to play golf. <laughs> yeah. I love to okay. hit the little round ball into the air. Yeah. And so you're a masochist, is what you're saying. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. And I, of course, like to travel both on behalf of veteran research, but also to meet other researchers to connect and find ways that we can help each other benefit from each other's research projects. And just quick, if you know, how long have you worked at the VA? I worked at the VA, you know, since I was a medical student, so that was 1975, but I was actually employed by the VA in 1989, so I'm coming up on 30 years. Wow, that's really cool. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Carden, thank you for coming on today, and uh, that's it for this episode of the Vets First Podcast. Thanks for listening. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.